Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to every single one of you, especially if you're a guest. We're really honored and privileged to have you here today, worshiping the Savior of all humanity who came on that very first Christmas. And uh, as I was saying back at Easter, that's a little church humor, a little poke at those of you who show up for church on Christmas and Easter. I'm just picking up where you left off. You can laugh. It's okay. (laughs) Some of you are elbowing each other. On a show of hands, how many of you are hoping in something today? Show of hands, you're hoping in something today. Yeah, lots and lots of us are hoping in something today today. Of course we are, right? We're all hoping in something, whether we raised our hands or not. And no show of hands for this next question. This is just for you to think on. Is what you're hoping in and is what you're hoping on and is what you're hoping for, is it really truly worthy of the weight that you've given that in your life? Is what you're hoping in and hoping on and hoping for, is it really, at the end of the day, going to come through for you? Is it going to come through for you? And that's kind of the question, isn't it? Is what you're hoping in and hoping on and hoping for, is it going to come through for you at the end of the day? And I don't know about you, but I've been thinking a bit about those two very recent Powerball winners. Remember back from the end of November? Did you hear about those two guys, right? Two different winners in two different states, one from Arizona, one from Missouri. They're splitting in half the $587.5 million jackpot, splitting it in half. That means that they'll take home about $136.5 million after taxes, which I'll bet that's like a Christmas time game changer for those families, right? You can imagine that's quite a pile of money. And uh, I'm a little curious, and so I ran some very quick math. I'm a pastor, not a mathematician, so it was very quick math on that. And I found out that if you conservatively invest $136.5 million at about 3% interest, that's about $4 million a year in interest, about $333,000 a month kicking off of your principal just in interest, which I'll bet a person, a family, could probably figure out how to live on $333,000 a month, huh? That they could navigate that. And I've been thinking thinking about those guys, I've been praying for those guys, and no, I haven't been praying that they would tithe to Journey. They could if they wanted to, but I haven't been praying that way. I have been praying, however, that they wouldn't hope in that newfound fortune that they won. I've honestly been praying for those families that they wouldn't see all that money as their savior because at the end of the day, it isn't going to work out for them, is it? It isn't going to work out. And I've been thinking about them. I've been praying for them because that's just kind of how it goes in this world, isn't it? It's really, really easy, not just for them, but for any of us to misplace our hope in stuff and things that just aren't going to come through in the end. And we all know that. We feel that. One guy I know calls it putting your hope in functional saviors. Putting your hope in functional saviors. What's a functional savior, you ask? It's anything that anybody ever looks to apart from God in order to find their hope and find their satisfaction and find their fulfillment. Functional savior. 
a functional savior, the things we look to to try to save us that are not God. They're an object of dependence that we embrace that isn't God. Functional saviors quickly become our source of identity and security and significance because we've sort of elevated them in our lives to a place of idol-like affection. That's where they live in our hearts. Functional saviors preoccupy our minds. They consume our time. They make us feel good. They even make some people feel pretty righteous, kind of like they've got it all figured out. And whether they realize it or not, countless people are controlled by their own personal functional saviors, whatever they may be. Stuff like having $136.5 million in the bank, kicking off $333,000 a month in income, that could really quickly become someone's functional savior. All of a sudden, you got all this money every single month, and you find you don't really need anything else, right? You don't need a job, and you don't need a community, and you don't need the one true savior of the world, Jesus Christ. At least you don't think you do, because now you can pretty well just go out and buy whatever it is that you think that you need. And in what is the greatest story ever, the story of Jesus Christ's birth, we see and we hear how the one true hope of all the world, the singular source of hope for salvation from an eternity spent separated from God, has become available. Wide open available to ordinary people, people just like you and people just like me, all because God loves you so much that he sent Jesus Christ, the one and only Son of God, to be born on that very first Christmas about 2,000 or so years ago. Now get this, even back then, the allure of finding hope and salvation apart from God, it was catching people up all over the place, and in Jesus' day, one functional savior in particular was becoming many people's source of identity, security, and significance. Luke, in one of the most recognizable writings in human history, he sets up the historical context of Jesus' birth. You'll recognize this verse, Luke chapter 2, verse 1. At that time, the Roman emperor, Augustus, decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. That's Luke's way of telling his readers, his hearers, that this isn't just another good story. This is actually a real story set in a real time in a very real place. And understand that the world that Jesus was born into, it was ruled entirely by the Roman Empire. The Romans had managed to surpass the Greeks and the Phoenicians in power. They had become the big kids on the block in a hurry. They became the only world power in the day that really mattered. Every aspect of day-to-day -day life was influenced by Rome and Rome alone. And it wasn't just that Rome was a big country set off somewhere. When Jesus Christ was born, get this, Rome controlled from England all the way to India. From England all the way to India. Think about that. That means they controlled all of Europe, most of Asia, parts even of northern Africa. All that before fax machines, cell phones, emails, post offices even. Rome was big, Rome was rich, and Rome was very, very powerful. And when Jesus Christ was born, when he came into this world, Rome was ruled by a series of rulers known as Caesars. That's exactly right. The first Caesar of Rome was whom? Julius, that's exactly right. And under Julius's command, Rome really reached the pinnacle of its power. But when Julius dies, as often happens, civil war broke out as people clamored for control of the empire. Eventually, however, Julius's nephew, a guy named Octavian, assumed the reins of the Roman Empire. 
and Octavian was renamed, anybody know? Augustus Caesar. Does that name ring any bells? At that time, the Roman emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. And see, Augustus was such a powerful figure that the Roman Parliament went so far as to declare him, watch this, this is about Caesar Augustus, they declared him God incarnate on the earth, Caesar. That's not Jesus they're talking about, that's Caesar Augustus. They called him God incarnate on the earth. He was frequently, Caesar was, referred to as the Son of God. Temples were built in his honor. Prayer and sacrifices were made to the God, Augustus. In case you hadn't noticed, the line between human and divine was blurred as he quickly rose to become Rome's marquee functional savior. Here he was. Virgil, the royal poet, wrote this about Augustus, not Jesus, about Augustus. The one who is to come will be the divine king of salvation for whom mankind has waited. He will annihilate the evil of the past and free the people from unceasing fear. That's not about Jesus. That's about Caesar Augustus. And then in the year 17 BC, historians tell us that a very peculiar comet star appeared in the skies. Commonplace belief was that this very strange comet was Julius going to heaven and in the process he was blessing the reign of Augustus. And the worship of this functional savior, Caesar Augustus, just kept growing and growing. And suddenly, Augustus wasn't just a ruler. He was like a divine figure. After the supposed heavenly blessing from that unique star, Augustus proclaimed that his cosmic hour had arrived. He announced a 12-day celebration of his birth that he called, are you ready for this? The 12 days of Advent in his own honor. Augustus claimed that history had reached its turning point in him, that Rome stood at the threshold of the unification of the entire world under his reign. Here I am, world, he proclaimed. And here's what they did. During the Advent celebration for Augustus, they passed out incense to every member of the Roman Empire so that they could properly worship him. And one of the most, get this, notable features of that worship celebration was obtaining forgiveness for their transgressions. So now Augustus, he wasn't just the divine ruler anymore, he was all of a sudden the divine mediator. He was claiming that he could actually pardon people's sins to function as the go-between for the people of Rome and the gods, little g-gods. They wrote hymns declaring their belief, their loyalty to Augustus. Some of the hymns went like this, Augustus is the savior of peace who has brought a golden age to the world. May it last with increasing splendor from age to age now and forever, not about Jesus Christ, about Caesar Augustus. Now get this, Augustus was a great guy. He was the ruler of the Roman Empire who actually managed to pacify the world. His military conquests and route to seizing dominion of Rome put an end to all the internecine wars that had been raging since Julius Caesar's assassination. So far-reaching was the peace that Augustus brought to the empire that in the year 29 BC, in the Roman Forum itself, the doors to the shrine of Janus, which stood wide open in times of war, they were at last able to be closed, signifying a true time of peace on earth. No more war, at least then. And the worship of Augustus rolled on and rolled on and rolled on. They sang, Caesar is the son of God. 
Salvation is to be found in none other save Augustus. And probably the most prolific worship of Augustus was this very simple line, catch this, Caesar is Lord, they would say. Caesar is Lord. It was really sort of the, hey, how's it going of their day. It was written on coins, declared in passing, affirmed in every single business transaction. Augustus wasn't just another ruler. He was the primary functional savior of their day. And see, that's the culture. That's the climate that Luke has in mind as he writes chapter 2 of his gospel narrative. That's everything that's going on. So when Luke says, Jesus was born in the days of Augustus, it isn't just about the date. It's a reminder of just how the world worked then, as well as Luke is attempting to draw a vast contrast between this very functional savior, Augustus, and the one true way to life as God intended life that can only come from the real savior, and his name is Jesus Christ. Luke saying, in essence, I know people are saying that Caesar is Lord, but let me tell you about the one true Lord. I know people say that the birthday that is worthy of divine honor and that is worthy of the demarcation of the new beginning of time, they're saying that that birth took place in Rome, in Augustus, but it didn't. It didn't, Luke proclaims. The real, authentic, one true savior of the world, the real hope of all the world, the hope of all of humanity, the hope that is worthy of putting all your stock in was born in Bethlehem. And his name is Jesus Christ. His name is not Caesar. His name is Jesus Christ. Let's, with all that in mind, listen to Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1. At that time, the Roman emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for the census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, his fiancée, who was now obviously pregnant. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her first child, a son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. That night, there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified, but the angel reassured them, don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, the Savior. Yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth, lying in a manger. Suddenly the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, glory to God in highest heaven and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. When the angels had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, let's go to Bethlehem, let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. They hurried to the village and found Mary and Joseph, and there was the baby lying in the manger. 
After seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about this child. All who heard the shepherd's story were astonished. But Mary kept all these things in her heart and thought about them often. The shepherds went back to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. It was just as the angel had told them. And that is the story of how the singular and authentic hope and savior of the world, Jesus Christ, the one and only son of God, came into this world. And the contrast between Augustus and Jesus Christ could not be more stark, could they? Here's Caesar Augustus who decides one day to flex his authoritarian muscle and he commands a census, the very census that sends Mary and Joseph on the road to Bethlehem regardless of their situation. He doesn't care. He doesn't care that she's about to give birth. He doesn't care that there's gonna be no room once they get there. He doesn't care. He's in charge. You go. I don't care. Augustus, he was born into wealth and he was born into power, wasn't he? Jesus, he was literally born in a barn. Jesus, the savior of the world, born in a barn. Augustus, he forced the people of Rome to celebrate him, forced to celebrate his birth. Jesus had shepherds and angels spontaneously celebrating his arrival. No incense required. Augustus, He's all about force, power, terror, coercion. Jesus, Jesus arrives as an innocent baby, perfect, innocent. And all those contrasts, they're just part of what makes the real Savior, Jesus, so authentically powerful, aren't they? Here we have Augustus setting himself up. I'm the world's Savior, but we know only God can do that. Only God can do that. Augustus claims to be the mediator between the gods and man asserting, I can forgive sins. But true reconcil- we know that true reconciliation with God only comes through Jesus Christ, through none other. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through him. Augustus, he promised to usher in a reign of peace that would extend for ages and ages But we know that the only true Prince of Peace is Jesus Christ. And you hear all that, and it isn't at all difficult to understand why Christians were so rigorously persecuted by the Roman Empire. It wasn't a religious intolerance thing. It was a treason thing. See, by anyone's claiming that Jesus was who he said he was, they were arguing that Caesar was not who he said he was. Because there can never be two lords. Most of us a few minutes ago when I asked you if you were hoping in something, a whole bunch of hands in this room went up. We're almost all hoping in something, but the question becomes, is what you're hoping in, is what you're hoping on, is what you're hoping for, is it worthy of the weight that you've given it in your life? Is everything that you're hoping in and hoping on and hoping for, is it just another in a long line of functional saviors? They've promised a whole lot, but at the end of the day are entirely unable to deliver anyone's ultimate need, which is salvation from sin. That is everyone's ultimate need, salvation from sin, which can only come from the one true savior of the world, Jesus Christ, through none other. 
It's Christmas 2012, and we're not at all living under the thumb of a Roman Empire, nor do we have a Caesar ruling over us. But the battle for where and in whom you put your hope and trust and faith, it's still raging to this very day, isn't it? We feel it every single day. The gravitational pull to buy in, to believe in, to give ourselves to the functional saviors of our day. And the question for us becomes, are you going to trust in the functional saviors of our time? Stuff like power and politics and money and business, government, prestige, family, personal intelligence, position and so. Are you going to put your faith, your trust, your hope in the one and only Savior who can and who will deliver you from your sin to the life that God intended for you from the very beginning of time? Will you? Luke's narrative of Jesus Christ's birth reminds us that even in a time when one very powerful man literally ruled the world, he was still absolutely no match for a baby who was born of a virgin. And while the whole world may be bowing down in worship to all of the functional saviors of our day, this is the truth. Jesus Christ alone is Lord. Jesus Christ alone is able to save. And Jesus Christ alone is worthy of all of our hope. And if you believe that, if you believe that today, what changes in your life? What changes for you if you believe that? I'm going to ask you, if you would, please, just to bow your heads and close your eyes. I invite you just to move into a posture of prayer and listening to the Lord. And I just invite you in this quiet moment to have some interaction with him on the things we've been hearing about and watching and singing about. I'm going to ask you just to stay in a posture of prayer and listening to the Lord. I'm just going to speak right into this time, if you'll let me. What's true is that today, Jesus Christ himself is inviting every single one of us to put down whatever functional saviors we've been misplacing our hope in. Will you put yours down today? Will you do that right now? Will you just confess to him that you've misplaced your hope in people and things and places other than him? And we just tell him that you acknowledge that he alone is worthy of all of your hope. And there may be some who you just know that you're not living in harmony with God's life and will. 
And God's invitation to you today is to take the step of saving hope in Jesus Christ. He's inviting you to salvation from your sin. He's inviting you today to the life that he made you for. He's inviting you to live out all your days on his mission, living for him. That's his invitation to you today. And you can take that very bold step of trusting him with your saving hope by praying with me right now. I invite you to pray with me. Jesus, I get it. I acknowledge, I confess that I'm a sinner. I acknowledge that I can't save myself. I acknowledge that all these functional saviors that I've been buying into, they're not gonna get the job done either. And so Jesus, with all the faith I can muster in this moment, I gratefully receive your gift of salvation that comes only from you. Your Jesus, what I really need. I trust you alone as Lord. I trust you alone as Savior. And I thank you, Jesus, from the depths of my heart for coming to earth on that first Christmas, for dying for me on the cross, for rising from the dead on the third day. Thank you, Jesus, for bearing my sin. Thank you for giving me a new heart. Thank you for giving me the gift of eternal life. I trust you, Jesus, with my everything. And I declare today, I am hoping in you alone. It's you. And if you prayed with me just then to step into the saving hope of Jesus Christ today, that is the single biggest decision of your whole life. It's such a big deal that I want to acknowledge that decision with you today. And so I want you to know nobody's looking around this room. It's me, you, and God right now. If you prayed with me just then to give your heart and give your life to Jesus, would you just be really bold right now? And would you just slip your hand up and lock eyes with me and just let me say yes with you? Yeah, right here in front and right here in front. You can do that right now. Just make sure I can, yeah, right here, absolutely, yes. And here, to my right, yes. And to my right over here, yes, I see you, yes. Yeah. Yeah, way to go, guys. Way to go. Just make sure I catch your eye. Yeah, right there, yes, absolutely. And here, yeah, absolutely. Way to go. And there, yes, I see you, absolutely, yes. And so, Jesus, we confess our functional saviors. We leave them today at your feet. And we run full-hearted God toward you. We want to be caught up in you alone, the one true hope of all the world, the one who's worthy of our everything, the one who again and again and again comes through on your promises, Jesus. It's you. And we worship you and we declare our allegiance to you and we trust in you for our everything, our life here and now as well, Jesus, as our eternity. We worship you. 